Hello, it's Richard McLean-Smith here. As we take a break between seasons, I thought I'd revisit some of my favourite episodes from the show. And where better to start than with our very first, the one that launched it all back in January 2016. I'd been toying with the idea for a while of creating a show that explored the strange and unexplained that everyone from sceptics to believers could enjoy. When I came across the story of Netta Fornario, it all clicked into place. Here was a story that had it all. The enigmatic Netta herself, an ancient mystical landscape, the occult, and crucially, one of the most inexplicable mysteries ever featured on the show, even after seven years of episodes. This is Unexplained, Season 1, Episode 1, Opening the Gate. For many, our greatest fear is that we are ultimately alone, with no explanation as to why we are here. And I don't just mean in the metaphorical sense, I mean literally, that the human race might exist alone as the sole sentient being in the entire universe. Perhaps in a way to counter this fear, we tell stories, so at the least we might share our experience of the world and in some way feel less alone. And sometimes these stories might involve beings or entities from other realms, or even from a time before time. There is certainly a strange comfort in contemplating things beyond our everyday practical experiences. The thought that there are things we don't yet know or understand, things unseen that might speak of something more. But I often think, what if these weren't just stories? What if we weren't in fact alone? Might that be altogether more terrifying? And what if all we needed to access these unseen worlds was some kind of gateway? What price might we pay for opening it? You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. In discussing the horror writer H.P. Lovecraft, the author Michel Houellebecq was struck by his utter materialism. You see, for Lovecraft, the ultimate horror is not to be found in the psyche. His monsters aren't manifestations of a suppressed unconscious or malicious supernatural energies. His monsters were independently real, made of flesh and blood. That we can't see them doesn't render them figments of the imagination. It merely suggests that they are occupants of another dimension that we have not sufficiently evolved to see. Indeed, when Lovecraft writes that on completing the repugnant Necronomicon, its ill-fated author, Abdul al-Hazred, was shortly after devoured in broad daylight in a market square in Damascus by invisible monsters. And if this all sounds a little far-fetched, it's worth bearing in mind the many worlds theory, a leading theory of quantum mechanics widely accepted by some of the finest minds humanity has ever produced. Although the theory has many interpretations, it allows for the implication that we are at any one time surrounded by an infinite amount of other dimensions, all stacked up and existing right on top of each other. It is a theory adopted by some ufologists to explain the sighting of UFOs and aliens. In answer to the question, 
what possible technology could exist for them to travel across space, defying all concepts of time and space expansion. They might merely reply, perhaps they don't come from outer space at all. The famous occultist Alistair Crowley once claimed to have made contact with an unearthly being after completing a sacred ritual known as the Amalantra working. With it, Crowley claimed to have invoked the spirit of an entity known as Lamb. Crowley made a drawing of the entity, which, with its large eyes and elongated forehead, bears a striking resemblance to the familiar grey alien of Law. Only this drawing was made in 1918, a good 30 years before such images entered the public consciousness. The much-loved thinker and psychonaut Terence McKenna frequently discussed his experiences of taking the drug dimethyltryptamine, also known as DMT. The hallucinogenic is believed to stimulate the pineal gland, a gland at the base of the brain that is considered responsible for near-death experiences. It is also thought by some to be the location of the third eye, a sort of biological gateway into other dimensions or states of consciousness. On the experience of taking the drug, McKenna describes the sensation of being propelled through an unknowable space into a place beyond time, only to be greeted by strange-looking entities who had been waiting for him all along. He called these beings clockwork elves. It is an experience that has been shared by many users of the drug. Yet for all these different examples, might these entities in fact be the same thing? Perhaps over the years, we have just labelled them in different ways, sometimes angels, sometimes demons, sprites and aliens, and maybe even fairies. The island of Iona lies just off the western coast of Scotland. Measuring barely three and a half miles long, it is known for its white sandy beaches and its wild and rugged beauty. It is also known as the final resting place of many ancient kings of Scotland, including Shakespeare's own Macbeth. Like many of the Scottish islands, it has a rich history of folklore, paganism and even witchcraft. An island where the past seems forever to lurk in the shadows, it has often been described as a thin place, a place where heaven and earth are thought to be separated by only the finest of veils. Back in the autumn of 1929, a beautiful young occultist named Netta Fornario told her friends in London that she was planning a trip to the island. Drawn by Iona's mystical past, she told them that she planned to make contact with the island's ancient spirits. Netta made it to the island, but what exactly she found there, we will never know. For less than two months after her arrival, Netta would be found dead in the most mysterious of circumstances. It is a mystery that remains to this day unexplained. Nora Emily Fanario known as Netta to her friends, was born in Cairo in 1896. After the premature death of her mother, she was abandoned by her father and sent to live with her grandfather in London. Her childhood was by all accounts an unhappy one, characterised by a restlessness of spirit and a seemingly unrequited desire to belong. 
1922, having tried to settle down in Italy, Netta returned to the UK, to the town of Bishop Storford in Hertfordshire. The town had recently developed a reputation as somewhat of an occultist hotspot, being as it was the location of the Grange, an institute run by Irish occultist and prominent Freemason, Theodore Moriarty. At some point, Netta was initiated into a secretive magical order known as the Alpha and Omega Temple, a branch of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn that had remained loyal to its original founder, Samuel Mathers. Members of the Golden Dawn were devoted to the study of Hermetic magic and other esoteric traditions, and counted among them the likes of the poet W.B. Yeats and Alastair Crowley. Followers believed that beyond our world of the senses lay other worlds and entities that we might contact if only we had the requisite knowledge and training, and that in turn, with their knowledge, they would gain a better understanding and control of our own world. By 1929, Netta had moved again, relocating to Richmond in London. There is a photo of her taken around this time, showing a striking dark-haired young woman in a long handmade silken tunic. In her eyes, one might discern a certain sense of knowing, or perhaps the awareness of something beyond our everyday understanding of things. A few months after this photo was taken, Netta made her journey to the island. Upon arrival to Iona, Netta took up lodgings with a woman named Mrs. McRae in the small village of Tremor. Mrs. McRae, a lifelong resident of the island, was instantly smitten with her new lodger. Over the coming weeks, Netta would fascinate her host with knowledge of the occult and her mystical practices. And in return, Mrs. McRae would delight Netta with her own tales of mysterious happenings and Hebridean folklore. By day, Netta would roam the beaches and moorlands. Then at the coming of night, she would attempt to make contact with the spirits of the island, falling into lengthy trances in order to do so. Netta had confided in Mrs. McRae that shortly before her visit, she had fallen into such a trance that had lasted over a week. She gave express instruction that should she again enter any such state, she should be left alone and that no doctor should be called for. Before long, strange things began to occur. Netta began to speak of visions, things she had seen in the heavens, and of messages that she had received from the spirit world. Her host and fellow lodgers became increasingly concerned for her well-being. Suddenly, that faraway look in her eyes, that had been at first so charming, now seemed instead to suggest a sort of madness, or maybe even something far worse. On the morning of Sunday, 17th of November, 1929, Mrs. McRae found Netta unusually restless and agitated. She began packing up all her belongings while muttering to herself that certain people were disturbing her telepathically. She spoke of a mysterious rudderless boat that sailed across the sky and messages she had received from another world. She had decided to return to London without delay. Unfortunately, no boats operated on the island that day and Netta was forced to change her plans. After finally calming down, she decided to stay after all 
and promptly retired to her bed. The next morning, Netta was nowhere to be found. As the hours wore on and she did not return, the people of the town became alarmed for her safety. They sent out a search party to scour the bays and inlets for any sign of the young woman. They searched the rocks and moorlands, becoming increasingly desperate as the short November day turned steadily to night. After a long and fruitless search, they returned reluctantly to their beds. The following day, the search was renewed, but again they found nothing. About two and a half miles away from Mrs. McRae's cottage, by the side of Loch Stanag, were the remains of an ancient village in which Netta had expressed interest in visiting. As dawn approached, two local men were searching the surrounds of the ruins when they made a shocking discovery. There, lying sprawled across the top of a small mound, naked except for a large black cloak, was the dead body of Netta Fonario. A blackened silver cross hung about her neck and by her hand lay a small silver dagger. Underneath her body, a large cross had been carved into the turf, presumably with the same dagger. Her body was covered in unaccountable scratch marks. The soles of her feet were torn and had bled a great deal, while her heels remained unscathed. But perhaps strangest of all was the location of her body. Netta had been found lying on top of what is often known as a fairy mound. The fairy mound, or fort, is thought to be imbued with druidic magic and is considered to be a gateway between the realms of magic and our own human world. The precise cause of her death proved inconclusive, though it was later recorded as death by exposure to the elements. She was 33 years of age. Needless to say, there has been a great deal of speculation about the nature of Netta's death. Had she made her way to this remote spot in response to some mysterious urge? Had she attempted some sort of magical ritual and merely underestimated the chill of the night? Or was it something else entirely? Had Netta in fact achieved what she had set out to do and opened a door to another world? A world that perhaps she had not been entirely ready to discover? It has been suggested that the precise reason Netta had travelled to Iona was to perform a ritual to bring peace to a fairy woman who had long ago been burned alive by monks. The monks had been followers of Saint Columba, who established a monastery on the island in 563 AD. It was Columba's intention to rid the Kingdom of Scotland of its pagan past and replace it with the new face of Christianity. Further reports from the night of Netta's death speak of strange blue lights coming from the location of her body and a cloaked man seen close to the area. A number of letters of strange character were also believed to have been taken by the police but were never later released. Had Netta somehow made contact with the fairy woman? Had she somehow burst through into her world but found herself unable or unwilling to return to our earthly realm? Perhaps a clue can be found in the writings of Fiona MacLeod. MacLeod was the pseudonym of William Sharp, 
a Scottish poet and fellow occultist whom Netta greatly admired. In an article titled Iona, Sharp relates a story from when he lived on the island as a child. He had travelled to his friend Elsie's house, only to be met by her distraught mother. She told him that Elsie had somehow made contact with a monk from the 7th century. She believed the monk had been hostile to Elsie. Afraid of what he might do, Elsie was now hiding on the only part of the island that she felt safe. Her mother continued. The monks are still strong here, except by Stanick, where there's a path that no monk can go. There, in the old days, they burned a woman. But she was not a woman. She was one of the sorrows of the Sheen, a fairy. It's ill to any that brings harm to them, and that is why the monks are not strong by Stanick way. Was it solely a coincidence that this is where Netta's body was found? Netta's friend and fellow occultist, Dion Fortune, believed Netta to have had a deep knowledge of Green Ray elementals. An elemental is also known as a fairy, and the Green Ray is supposedly the wavelength of energy in which their world operates. Fortune also believed that Netta had a strong pineal sensitivity. The supposed seat of the third eye our own gateway into other dimensions. This being the same gland so stimulated by DMT as to reveal clockwork elves to Terence McKenna, perhaps it was also this gland that Crowley affected when conducting the Amalantra working that revealed to him the strange entity he called Lamb. In truth, we will never know. The Friday after Netta was discovered, the islanders laid her body to rest. They placed on top a rough tombstone etched with the letters M-E-F for Marie Emily Fornario. Finally, I want to just draw attention to an essay written by Netta that you can actually find online. The essay is an attempt by Netta to make clear to people the true meaning of an opera written by her favourite writer, Fiona MacLeod. The opera called The Immortal Hour, tells the story of an immortal race of fairies who are feared by humans for the interference they can bring to mortal lives. Reading the essay, I was struck by one part in particular concerning the finale of the opera. Delua, an agent of unseen and fateful powers, whose touch brings madness and death to mortals, has stolen the wife of the hero king, Yokade. In a desperate bid to be reunited with his queen, Yokade begs of Delua, my dreams, my dreams, give me my dreams. To which Delua replies, there is no dream, save this, the dream of death. At this point, Delua touches Yokade and he is instantly removed from this world. As Netta notes, it is the moment implying that death itself is only a dream and that the ultimate reality for Yokade lies in the other world where all life is one life. Had Netta too come to the same realisation, that death was merely just a dream? This episode of Unexplained was produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring stories that have never before been featured on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones, 
among other bookstores. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.com.